episode 199 of Late Night Limits, recorded on the 10th of October 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Good evening. Graham. Tonight we're going to party like it's 199. <laughs> and Will. Hello. Yeah, we're almost at 200 episodes. And uh, yeah, so we'll have to do a 200th episode spectacular next time, where we'll do a normal show, because we're boring. <laughs> but this time, let's get on with our discoveries then. Phelan, ADSB Exchange. Yes, for all those people who share uh, the locations of airplanes, this is the unfiltered one that doesn't like limit military planes and things like that. Well, there is a thing in that called MLAT, which is multilateration, where aircraft that only transmit the fact that they're there in the air, but not their position, you can actually work it out using triangulation and enough stations mm-hmm. about the place. What I didn't realize that the crappy Raspberry Pi two i think it was i think it was a two yeah it was a two was actually struggling horribly when i found that there was another link to the the mlat stats and it was dying a death and not linking up to all the other people nearby well enough so i resurrected the pi 3 that had the broken power port that i tried to solder but just made an absolute arse of it and ended up getting a poe hat for it and i had never actually plugged the damn thing in i have a POE injector that I hooked up, stuck it up in the attic with the aerial and swapped out the two pies. And now I'm getting excellent connections back to thing. I've no latency with their statistics and I'm connected to 47 other people locally across in Wales, Dublin and various parts of Ireland. And uh, I've got way better stats than that. So where is Taylor Swift right now? Well, she she's only flown for two minutes and she killed five seals on the way when she was landing. Yeah, there's Twitter accounts, aren't there, that uh, follow private jets. And I, I was literally going to ask uh, if you could tell me where Taylor Swift was. Of course you did. <laughs> well, I was using it myself to track some planes. I wrote myself a Telegram bot, so it would ping me in a channel and just tell me when stuff happened. So that was quite fun. But then they changed the API and never got around to adjusting my code. So I, I need to do that. Are you close to, I guess, Dublin International Airport? Is it, does it help to be close to an airport? You don't have to be. I'm probably the far side of the city. It's probably a 30-kilometer drive to get there, but it's near enough. And I'm also near the Irish Air Corps base, which is on the flight path of that. So I have things like I watch for planes coming nearby in a sort of four-coordinate box that I wrote, and it would just ping me and say that there's one coming if it was anything interesting. Because, you know, just the odd time you might have the Yanks flying in on, you know, they've got these 737s that are actually like Air Force ones, and they might be like a, a minister or something like that flying in or the queen or the king or she doesn't need an airplane anymore no she does not and i don't know why i'd be interested in them flying over my house oh well i can think of a few reasons Phelan. i don't know where you're going with this a scurrilous attack on my character is what i hear so do military planes send this data out as well Yes, they do. And it, you can send out various parts of the message. It, there's a whole sequence of where you can just have your transponder code. So airport radar works by not actually finding where the airplane is. It pings out a signal and you return a signal back to it with an actual data packet. It doesn't actually detect it the way a military radar would, where you actually say, I know that you're this high, you're this far away, and you're traveling that quick. So what it actually does, it tells it, it says, uh, yeah, I'm here. I've this transponder code. I'm going at this speed, this altitude, and a whole load of other stuff that you wouldn't even think you'd need to know, but it's there in the packet. But you can send various versions of that packet where the military might just go, yeah, I'm here, I'm on this transponder code, or 
sometimes they might just give you the lat long or they may give you the speed or they may give you other bits but using this thing the mlat code which a lot of them don't do like so the likes of flight radar they won't show military airplanes unless they're using the full open one where they might actually show them on screen but say for instance there's somebody doing um a tornado's or rather what's the other one, Eurofighter, say they're launching to intercept a Russian plane, they won't have them on, most likely. They may actually fully switch them off, in which case they won't appear, but you'll often see some crazy call sign and a pair of them flying up into the Irish Sea or whatever. And yeah, it's quite interesting to see all that type of stuff. I mean, in fairness, I think it's only fair. They are flying above our head and could drop on us at any point in time. I think things like air traffic control and their location should be public because they may kill you. And you're not hiding from the military, the baddie military, because they're going to see you with their normal radar. Exactly. I mean, it's completely, you know, if anybody thinks that somebody's sitting there going, oh, well, my master plan, I know that the bomber's coming. Now, they do do things like shows of force where they might fly a B-52 around Europe to say, look how great we are or something like that. And they'll purposely turn them on just to show where they are. And, you know, look, we're flying right up to the edge of the border, but not going across it and then flying zigzags all the way down. Um, so, yeah, no, it's quite interesting stuff. And to be honest, it's quite interesting to see packets flown in off what is effectively a 15-pound TV antenna. Um, like, hmm. I bought a slightly better aerial, and I'm hoping to get a amplifier filter to improve it a bit, because it sits in my attic, and I am an absolute gutless chicken, and there's no way, even if the house is on fire, and the only way to survive was to climb on the roof, I would be just like, well, barbecue it is then, <laughs> because uh, there is no way I'm going up there. Uh, I got a liner for our chimney one time, and the lad was clearly part mountain goat, just climbed up there and shoved it down. It was standing on top of the chimney stack, shoving it down the pot and I was just like I can't watch this I had to go inside so uh, yeah <laughs> it's in my attic it's not the best place for it but it'll do and uh, hopefully amplifier boosts that up a bit but it's great crack and it's you know if you've got a pie liner in place it's only about a 20 quid investment to get a TV receiver and just flash it with their ISO and you're off good to go Will Virtual Smart Home introduced Protea yeah, so back in episode 179, I talked about Virtual Smart Home, which is an add-on for Node-RED that allows you to add pretty much anything to Alexa to allow you to control it and query it via Virtual Smart Home. It's a server component that runs in AWS, and it's a, an add-on for Node-RED that sits on your Node-RED install and allows you to add all these devices and control them and query them and so on and so on. And the guy who runs it announced recently that the costs that he was having to maintain in order to provide this service on the AWS side had got so great that he needed to start effectively charging for this. And he made this announcement via a comment or rather an issue on the GitHub project for the Node-RED part of it. So the most popular repo that he's got to interface with his users he logged an issue there and talked about how the costs had increased and that he needed to charge for it. So far, so so reasonable, I think. And then people started logging issues to say, oh, all of my stuff's broken and you never told me about it. And the reason that I'm bringing this up, I think that he's absolutely right to charge for this service. He does offer a free service, but if you want some extra features and some extra devices, you have to pay for it. It's not a lot of money. It's about uh, a couple of dollars a month. 
But the reason I think it's interesting is how do you, as an open source project, communicate with your users who have no relationship with you? They install your package through a point and click interface on somebody else's product. They have no obligation to talk to you. And a lot of them have no real interest in sharing their information, their email address or whatever, with you as that developer. So how do you go about communicating things like this to those users? So I think that the guy did everything right and did a very good job and explained exactly what was happening. And still people complain. Uh, And I think that it's an interesting problem to solve. I don't have any solutions, but uh, I thought it it was interesting. I don't think there is another way, is there? That's like a real catch-22 situation that you're going to piss people off no matter what you do there. And so all you can do is just put it somewhere public and hope they see it. But they're just not going to, are they? Yeah, exactly. And until their service breaks, and you know, the only reason they would have to interact with you is because their service suddenly stopped working one evening then they go searching for the GitHub project and just log a bug. You know, they didn't even look for the issue and comment there. So yeah, you know, by that time, it's too late that people's services are already broken. So yeah, I don't know. There's a there's a moral in there somewhere that if you're using free services and you don't really have any relationship whatsoever with that service provider, then you expose yourself to being cut off at any minute. I saw an interesting thing in a couple of projects One was that they would have a sort of important news RSS feed built into the web interface. And if that device was able to get access to the web, it would pull it down into the user interface where you could say, by the way, there's a big change coming or something like that. I don't know. It's one way. But yeah, I mean, if you're not paying for a service, you can't really expect five nines availability. I'm sure people do, though. Yeah, I'm sure people were absolutely livid as well. Failing raises a, a good idea there. I think there's room in Node Red to allow plugins to expose information in this way, but then you know people are going to take the piss and start exploiting it for other reasons. Uh, it's really tricky. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. All right, well, my discovery is that there's going to be yet another hacker public radio New Year show. And so this has happened every year for, I don't know, seven or eight years, I think, where people get together on the Mumble server and just talk bollocks for 26 hours. Obviously, it's not the same people. People come and go and uh, it's, you know, it goes through the different time zones and everything. And I have been known to take part in this in, let's say, various states of inebriation as the night goes on. I might pop on on my phone or whatever. So I may join this year. It depends what's going on my end. So uh, 
hackerpublicradio.org for more details of it. Anyway, I'll put a link in the show notes. Hi, Ken. Yes, Ken sent us an email. But in that email, he also talked about how they're going to be at FOSDEM again, and they have a table there, the podcast table, and they need volunteers to sit at that table and, um, you know, supervise, whatever. So if you're going to FOSDEM and you fancy helping them out, then get in touch. All the contact details are on hackerpublicradio.org. It is good fun, the New Year live show. It ends up being about all sorts of shit, not just Linux and open source. Just Maybe it's just when I turn up, we end up talking about guitars and fucking all sorts. So uh, yeah, definitely uh, give it a go if you're bored on New Year. All right, Graham, <laughs> it's time for you to make another terrible racket <laughs> with tuning workbench synth. This is to do with tuning, and it's a really complicated subject that's well beyond my knowledge, really, even though twiddling with synths don't give me enough reason to procrastinate from actually doing any music. Um, I look at the tuning of synths. And tuning, I mean, just like a guitar, you can change the pitch, the frequency that every note on a synthesizer produces. And pianos have a certain scale. Um, It's called an equal temperament scale. And it's not exactly as you would think in terms of there being an equal division across the notes. There's a very complicated relationship between how certain pitches interact, which you can see on an oscilloscope and you can see in the harmonics. And there's a big problem with fifths, for example, dividing into twelves, which creates all kinds of problems when you're trying to play in different scales. It's pretty mathematical and horrible. But if you're interested in sound, playing with the way that synths are tuned is a bit like playing with the way that guitars are tuned. They enable you to access different kind of chord inversions and if you don't choose the intervals that we're used to you can create tunings that god i can see everyone falling asleep (laughs) (laughs) well i've actually seen videos about this with guitar so a guitar can never really be in tune because of this and so there's now uh you can add extra frets that are like in between them and so me growing up thinking the reason my guitar was always seemed weirdly out of tune was because I just can't tune a guitar or I've got shit guitars. Then I got really good guitars and then it was like the same situation. <laughs> I think those first two things are true in a lot of cases though. <laughs> well, true. But like I've got a good tuner now and good guitars and still like, I, you know, you play one chord, it sounds fine and you play another. It's like there's something slightly yeah. off about that. So thanks for saying that. The reason why I'm saying all this is a bit of a background because... To be able to accommodate different scales and different chords, every pitch has to be off slightly. It's called a temperament. It's tempered slightly according to the scale that you want to play. And it means that you're no longer on the exact frequencies that you would expect if you were to calculate a scale mathematically. And it all depends on the chords you play and the key that you play. And if you were to do it 100% accurately, then the tuning would change with every single note that you played according to what you were going to play next and what you'd played previously. Anyway, that's all academic. There are very few tools actually for playing with tuning, commercial or otherwise. There's a famous old academic tool called Scala, which most people use to generate scales and tunings for each note. It's an old piece of software. I think it's Java. It, it's open source. <laughs> it runs on Linux, but it, it really is a, it's very old. In the modern environment, there's very little to play with. And this is where my discoveries of the Fortnite come to, because there are two things. The first is something I've mentioned before, which is the Surge synth. 
it has an amazing capability of playing with tunings. You can load Scala files and it will map those Scala files to the 128 MIDI notes and you can see it as a spreadsheet basically of all the frequencies per note and you can play it. So I should try and play some of this stuff. But it isn't Surge itself. There's a fork of Surge which the team have created called Tuning Workbench Synth which is all of this tuning functionality in a separate app. Phew, right, I haven't even started. I mean, I could... <laughs> when are you going to make a racket, Graham? Come on. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. So what I want to show is the equal temperament tuning, which is basically an octave higher is double the frequency. And equal temperament divides that into 12 notes in the 12-note scale, but also tempers each one of those notes equally. It offsets them equally so that it captures the 12ths and the sevenths and the fifths and allows you to be more dynamic across scale. So it's it's that compromise you were talking about, Joe, in terms of things not sounding exactly right. I'm going to play it in This Is Equal Temperament. That's the uh, tuning workbench synth. Now I'm going to load in a scale called Just Intonation, which is mathematically perfect. So I'll, I'll play it again because I want you to, there's a slight bit of phasing, which is because the notes aren't exact. That was a C major triad for those keeping score. Oh, well done. So the perfect intonation, the mathematical model you'll see has got none of that phasing. Same chord. And that's the microtuning. That's because the frequency is exact in that latter example. Can you do it again? I didn't hear it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's much better. It is perfect. It's perfect for that scale of C. But what you can do, and this is where it gets interesting, you're interested in since you can change the frequency of every single note across every single key, and really you shouldn't be playing it on a keyboard because they're fixed into this 12-tone system that you don't necessarily need. It's better if you've got a matrix, but anyway. I'm going to drop in some Scala scales. They don't even have to have 12 notes. So, for example, here is one called Genovese 38. And then with Tuning Workbench Synth, you can change all of these pitches in real time. It's brilliant. It's a lot of fun. And it means that you can like, do things that are truly experimental in a way that you can't with any other setup. That's Tuning Workbench Synth, and then Tuning CLI is a command line tool that allows you to generate these scales algorithmically or take in the Scala files and export them as a, a spreadsheet if you want to see the actual frequencies for each of those notes. But most importantly, you can send them to synths that support the MIDI tuning standard. And I haven't found any other piece of software that will do this because I've got a couple of synths that will take MTS files. You can send them directly with the tune CLI command to your synth where compatible synths such as Surge will store them alongside the normal tuning. You can switch between them just like you can have sound patch. So it's a whole new dimension of sound exploration. I can't believe you didn't save this for the 200th episode spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I, have to, I have to find something else for that. <laughs> the funny thing about a keyboard is, though, it could almost be 
instant well i guess it would be instantaneous for our brain or ear to hear it that it could also do that if you're playing different chords it could be tweaking the tuning as it goes through unlike Mm. a guitar where you're just stuck with it and it's tough luck yeah that's right and there is software that will change according to scale because your brain just latches your brain knows what it's trying to do and that's what the temperate scales are trying to do they trick your brain into thinking that's the pitch and you can shift it in real time, and, and that's what you can do with that software. And there is other software that will change it according to the notes that are coming up. And it's just so complicated, but I, honestly, I love it. So It's so interesting when you start playing with pitches that are so close together, or 22-note scales, which you can play on a grid, and it just breaks away. When you can't play, I can't play. There's a few things I can play, but change the scale, and it opens up a whole new world of audio for you without you adding to your skills at all. Eddie Van Halen used to slightly tune his B string flat or sharp, I think, just because it made it better for certain chords. Yeah, depending on what key you're playing in, that could definitely help, yeah. And what's really surprising, because I've really looked into software, I'd be prepared to pay for it, and there's nothing. There's none of the mainstream commercial software that does it. There's nothing... You know, and open source really has got this surge and its interface. You can do all of this with like a circular graph showing you all the intervals between the notes. It's visual. It's it, You can play with it. It's immediate. You don't have to know what you're doing just to play with the sounds. And it's the best there is that I can find, which is really excellent for open source. It feels like the kind of thing that only open source would do. It's like how Radio 4 is the only radio station that could do certain stuff. Like, There's not enough of a commercial incentive for this kind of thing to make money out of it. And so the only way it could exist is open source somehow. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It just, uh, it's, it's scratching somebody's itch somewhere and they're sharing it. Yeah. And now you're sharing it with the world. (laughs) Whether they like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And if you want to get in contact, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. Matt says, back in the early days of the internet, I remember where I worked, we interviewed guests under the heading Celebrity Handbag. It was quite funny to see what everyday things celebs had in their bags. Joanna Lumley was particularly enlightening. I'd be interested to hear what the panel has in their handbag. By that, I mean either the Linux SysTray, i.e. what they monitor and utilize, or if they use a dock, then that. 
and maybe a bit of background on how they decide if something gets promoted to holy doc status. Also, I'm procrastinating quite badly here. I'd be interested to hear what the panel does while at their Linux workstation as they start procrastinating, both little procrastinations and those huge ones that go on all day. Okay, I'm going to get on with my work now. Well, I don't use a dock, and I don't use much up in my panel, but I do have a leftmost monitor, which is vertical and has a bunch of widgets on it of nonsense. don't know if that counts, but I've got a weather station out in the garden that it has graphs of from my WX thing. I have the Meteran weather warnings map of Ireland where it like highlights red and yellow if there's a weather warning going on. I've got a, strangely enough, weather widget from the default KDE one. And I have my power output from my current cost meter. I have a map of all the marine weather stations around Ireland because I swear I think I am a meteorologist if I don't count. And uh, I have a moving map display of Ireland with all the planes flying out of it. So there you go. Well, I have in my uh, whisker menu, uh, my favorites are Terminal, Audacity, EasyTag, Mate System Monitor, Mate Calculator, Vert Manager, and Mumble. And that's just all the shit that I use all the time. Except Vert Manager, I don't really use that much anymore. And otherwise, I have uh, shortcuts for Places, Firefox, Terminal, and Pavu Control. And show desktop as well, because I have it just set up in a total like Windows XP style, pretty much. They all seem like they might do work, though. You see that, like, whereas I could get distracted by a particular airplane flying overhead, and then several hours later of looking up who the history of the plane was. I mean, that's not even remotely distracting. Come on. Ah, well, that's what YouTube is for. So uh, YouTube is one of the uh, shortcuts in Firefox, and that's what I do when I'm procrastinating, uh, is I go to YouTube and watch stupid fucking guitar videos and stuff. Or recently I've got sucked into their TikTok rip-off shorts. Ah, uh, it's quite good, that, actually, yeah. Yeah, and like mm. you just use the scroll wheel to go down. Dangerous. I've seriously gone two hours of watching that, and each one's only a minute or two, and suddenly two hours goes by. What the fuck is that about? I have noticed one thing, though. The feckin' links don't match up to the video that you go to see sometimes. Yes. Oh, it's not just me. Oh, thank God. <laughs> no. And I've tried to, like, copy a link, and then it's, this is the wrong video. You have to scroll up one hmm. for some reason. <sighs> yeah, but that doesn't even work half the time. I've, I've gone up and down and not found the video, and I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, what have I sent? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> check this out. Oh, why? Why would I check out this right-wing lunatics video? Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I do get a lot of bullshit like that. I, I, is that saying something more about me or, the, or them? <laughs> I don't know. Because I don't get it on normal YouTube. I just get guitars and, and politics stuff. My stuff's very minimal. Over the years, I've, I mean, I used to have like webcams on my backdrop, but now I have like, I have an ultra wide display. So I actually have a vertical panel on the left. There's not much in there. I have the, the applications that are running, but because I run everything from K Runner rather than click on the icon, um, I don't have anything I kind of quick launch. Same. Hmm. Something I really like that I've recommended before is. In, in KD Plasma, that is the folder view widget. And specifically in the panel, I use the folder view widget set to the download folder. And the folder view widget, when you click on it, opens up the files in that. You can open it up as an icon view or you can open it as a list and you can sort it by modified or the time that it was added. And so with a download folder, you can click on the download folder in the, in the panel and it'll list all the things that have been 
in that folder according to when they were added to the folder, according to when they were downloaded, in other words. So if I'm downloading something and it's downloaded, I'll just click on that and that can access the thing, which is the most useful thing I've got in the dock. Apart from that, I do have the solar battery meter for the Logit- my Logitech trackball. Um, I have the time. And I, what I also really like in KD Plasma is the fact that you can hide this system panel widgets because I do. I hide all the ones that I don't need it to access to, you know, the stuff that like KPGP that's there by default or the clipboard. Actually, I use the clipboard sometimes. That's quite useful. But that's it. Yeah, it's pretty minimal for me. In terms of procrastinating, I have to terrible to admit it. I'm a terrible YouTube addict. Yeah, same in all fairness. What kind of videos do you get? Just synth shit? Probably. I don't. I try not to be tracked. I've got all the tracking off, so I get all load of random shit. But I have to say, even then, it's very successful at grabbing me. I can't remember what I spent half an hour watching the other day. Was it Mr. Beast giving someone a million quid? <laughs> <laughs> no, probably drive a car's driving through a load of flood water or something like that. Oh, I've seen that. Oh, right. yeah. oh God. I, like I hate myself. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, at least I get sensible stuff like Veritasium and stuff like that you liar don't make me open youtube and tell you what i what it suggests to me look last week i was looking at a fellow resole and a pair of doc martens with a proper sole and telling them about how <laughs> shite their boots are <laughs> did you know that boots that you put on and they feel comfortable while they're in the shop are going to end up being uncomfortable and boots that are uncomfortable in the shop will be brilliant after a while there you go i think mine's probably the most minimal the only thing I have in the, uh, whatever it's called, in XFCE down the bottom right-hand corner, I've got the time and then whatever apps are loaded, so Telegram and Mumble and what have you, and the workspace switcher. I use the workspace switcher probably the most of all the things in the bottom right-hand corner on my screen. The workspace switcher is the one I use the most. I have work up on one workspace and personal stuff up on another workspace, and so I can switch between work and other very, very easily. And I've got a little script that works out what workspace I'm on and sets the default browser accordingly. So for work stuff, I use Chrome. And for everything else, I use Firefox. And so when I switch back to my personal tab, it switches the default browser back to Firefox. And so any URLs I click from, for example, Telegram, will then open up in Firefox instead of in Chrome. Then I launch everything else through the whisker menu, which I've mapped to super spacebar, like on the Mac. That was the only thing on the Mac that I, I think was actually a good idea. Mm. And so I launch everything from there, from terminals to IDEs to browsers to whatever it is that I need to do. I do everything else through the, through the menu. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's my setup. And then procrastination is YouTube. Of course, I can't help myself. At the moment, it's all solar power stuff because I'm hoping to get my solar panels installed in the next couple of weeks. And it's a bit late now, but now I'm learning about how to set them up and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, just in time for the winter. <laughs> right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week for our 200th episode spectacular that I keep teasing and it's going to be such a disappointment. <laughs> uh, but until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. See you later.